You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline hides off today. This is Bloomberg Technology and what a show we have for you. Disney's capital spending and production costs coming in lower than projected and saving $3 billion for the entertainment company will bring you all the details. Plus, President Biden imposes limits on U.S. investments in China. Meanwhile, Alibaba returns to growth across all the main divisions, defying China's economic turbulence. What this all means for the Chinese tech sector. Finally, we'll take a deeper look at the Supreme court ruling in the epic case siding with Apple, at least for now. The single day we're watching in the earnings story is Disney. So many stories within it, raising prices for streaming, basically really outperforming. The loss on the streaming business much narrower than forecast, 512 million. But this is the Iger effect. Cost discipline and cost cutting has worked. The headline, spending this year will be $27 billion for content principally instead of the $30 billion they normally spend. That is something the market reacted to as, as, lo- as well as some of the financial forecasts they gave going forward. Let's get to our media and entertainment editor, Chris Palmieri, who joins us from L.A. Chris, cost discipline, Iger, the market likes it. What were some of the other key takeaways from that Disney print? Uh, well, the big headline is, yeah, it's, you know, they've implemented this big cost-cutting effort. It's dovetailing with the writers and actors' strikes, so they're saving money on production there. And, you know, there's just a general feeling on Wall Street that these companies were all spending too much on content. Uh, the lower-than-expected losses on, on streaming, half a billion dollars, if you could call that good, and dramatic price increases for the Disney Plus and Hulu services, 27% hike as they try to get to profitability next year in streaming, as they promised. You, you mentioned the loss, half a billion dollars, 512 million on the streaming business in the quarter. A year ago, it was 1 billion. And I think the executives have guided us to 750 million. We're still obsessed with subscriber count. So Disney Plus subscribers overall fell 7.4% right in the quarter gone. But the main story there is Disney Plus Hotstar. Explain to us what happened. Well, they lost the streaming rights to India Premier Cricket League, which was a big deal, big source of subscriber growth in India. 
and uh, a couple other countries. And so uh, that is really, you know, you're seeing the impact of that now for a few quarters, just a dramatic decrease in uh, subscribers locally there. Hey, Chris, what did uh, Iger and Co. say about the, the writers and actors strike and how that's going to impact the content slate? It was woven into the $3 billion in content uh, reductions, so they didn't specify how much was due to the strikes as opposed to just an overall reduction in spending that they've been implementing. Uh, but it's a significant enough number, uh, and we've seen these similar numbers from all of the uh, big media companies in, in recent weeks. Uh, billions of dollars collectively in savings as they don't have to make new TV shows and, and, and films right now. All right, Bloomberg's media entertainment editor, Chris Palmieri. The other big piece of news is Disney raising streaming prices right there. It's a 27% hike for the ad-free version of Disney+. Plus. It goes from 14 to $14 a month from 11 Really interesting, the story of Disney keeping up with Netflix in that sense. Let's keep the conversation going. Ross Gerber, president and CEO and co-founder of Gerber Kawasaki, an investor in Disney. That's a lot to take in, right? It's very rare you see four red headlines on the Bloomberg terminal from a single earnings report. But what was the main point for you, Ross? I think the main point is exactly what you guys have been focused on, is right-sizing the amount of spending that's being done in Hollywood with the actual revenue coming in from direct-to-consumer sources. So, you know, they started out really in a race for subscribers, um, very similar to online gambling, lots of acquisition costs. And now the business has matured and they have, you know, oh, well, almost 200 million plus subscribers, you know, and, and when you look at the business, you, they're very close to profitability. So these are the changes that need to be made to make streamers profitable like Netflix. So when you look at Netflix's profitability with over three and a half billion of free cash flow and, and growing, you know, what the potential is for Disney even if they don't add subscribers is to see profits actually come from these streamers in the next year. Ross, just for the benefit of our audience, I'm looking on the Bloomberg terminal. Gerber Kawasaki has around 150,000 Disney shares as of June 30th. So you've got skin in the game. You're a big Iger fan, right? Has your yeah. perception of him and his job changed based on, on what you heard last night? Not, not that his job has changed. He has a very challenging job, but he's got the help that I was hoping and praying he would with Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, you know, I know Kevin Mayer, and I am always impressed by his aggressiveness, his his connections, his ability to get projects done in Hollywood. And I, I see, you know, Iger making a move on Candle Media and bringing these executives back in the fold. And, and the big news about ESPN getting into the gambling business with Penn Gaming, you know, they kicked Portnoy out and they added ESPN. And this is a huge win for ESPN, not only with new revenue streams, but getting out to the consumers in a meaningful way and ultimately building a standalone sports app that could rival any app out there. So, so there are some exciting things out there, but ultimately Iger needs to focus on content. They need good movies. That really is the fuel of Disney. And that's really what I think Iger's really, you know, main goal is besides just cutting costs, but improving content. There's like two competing forces here where they're trying to have cost discipline but, you know, and reduce content spending. But the content slate is impacted because of the strikes. People want good stuff to watch. So how does Disney get the balance right, making sure they've got things that get eyeballs without overspending? 
Well, unfortunately, the movie business is very, you know, hit and miss and somewhat random, and, the, and there's no real formula for success as we've seen over the years. Disney's had a great run over its long term in finding tremendous talent. So what's happening now with the strike, and, and we're hoping that the strike ends at the end of summer once everybody's done with their vacations, they'll realize they need to make money again. So I do think that the strike will end soon and we won't see too much of a hiccup. But with there's been so much content made over the last two years. None of us have seen even close to all of it. And this is what I think the writers and the actors are miscalculating. And maybe there's a short-term effect of their strike, but there's just so much content in the hopper. There's international content. They're even greenlighting inter you know, independent projects right now. There are over 100 productions that were greenlighted by SAG even during the strike. And some of them are for big streamers like Apple TV. So the strike is really just posturing in the industry after having just an amazingly profitable period of time. Now these companies need to make money. It's a bad time for a strike, and, and they're going to cut costs and do what's necessary to right-size their businesses. So so it's a changing time, and, and we're seeing it in technology, and we're seeing it now in entertainment as we right-size in the post-pandemic era. Michael Morris, an analyst at Guggenheim who covers the company, asked Bob Iger on the, on the call, what are the chances of a big technology company buying Disney? And I guess I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna comment about that. But the, the rumor, the idea has been there for so long. What do you think about that, Ross? Well, I think if Apple had, you know, the I didn't say Apple. Well, I think if they did, they would have bought Netflix in the day, they would have bought Tesla in the day, and they've had several attempts at Disney, and they certainly should take this opportunity right now, but they're not going to. So Apple isn't that company, and they're wholly focused on Vision Pro. I think the one to look at is really Amazon and Google. I do think the future of entertainment is very much going to be led by tech giants, not traditional media companies. And so as we see this transition, you know, there's a very high likelihood that somebody might bid for all or parts of Disney. That said, I think the company is fine the way it is, and they just need to, you know, fix the problems they have, which are fixable, and the stock has tremendous value in my mind um, long, for long-term investors, despite, you know, its poor performance over the last two years. If you look at the 10 years before it, it's been a phenomenal performer under Iger. So, so we've had a big step back, but I think it's an opportunity for investors. In my fund, GK, it's a top holding for us. It's in the top 15 holdings for us. And, and I'm, you know, a long-term investor in Disney, and I'm not, you know, planning on changing right. that. Uh, really quick on the tech perspective, Disney was talking about how they have the technology to assess password sharing and that, you know, going into the next fiscal year, it will be more of a priority. That was a, a factor for Netflix and its earnings. How do you think about password sharing in, in the context of Disney Plus? Well, I was surprised how successful Netflix was in getting users to sign up in the password sharing and having little backlash, as I thought possibly they could have some pretty severe backlash and lose subscribers because of it. But in in hindsight, if the content's good, people will pay for it. And that's the bottom line. You know, sort of the debate over, you know, will people pay for X and will people pay for social media platforms versus paying for entertainment platforms like Netflix or Disney Plus? And what we're seeing is people will pay and we have the technology to, you know, hold people accountable. And I think that's, you know, a win-win for all involved. I think giving away the product, you know, at the beginning it served everybody, but now it doesn't.
All right, Ross Gerber, president, CEO, and co-founder of Gerber Kawasaki with the Disney Reaction. Thank you very much. Coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, what President Biden's executive order means for China tech and the U.S. tech sector. We're going to talk about that and more with Joanne Feeney, advisors, capital management. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. President Joe Biden enacted an executive order yesterday placing stringent restrictions on specific U.S. investments in China's sensitive tech sectors, for example, chips, quantum tech and select AI systems. This is part of a push to restrict the company's ability to develop next generation military and surveillance technologies that could potentially threaten U.S. national security. That is the news. Let's bring in Joanne Feeney, partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management. You know, you're an investor with a global view, but we also know you as somebody with a long history with the chip sector, the chip sector, a target of this Biden initiative. What's, what's your reaction to, to the executive order, first of all? You know, this is yet another move by the U.S. government uh, over the last many years, uh, spanning administrations, to try to limit the flow of technology to China. You know, for many years, we basically gave our technology away by looking the other way when, when China was acquiring technology through dubious means, uh, through trade relations, through manufacturing operations in China. And now, you know, with uh, the previous administration and this one, the professionals within those those departments are trying to curtail that. And this is yet another way. So by restricting venture capitalists' ability to uh, make new investments in China and private equity ability to make new investments in China, the hope isn't so much that the deprivation of that bit of capital, that bit of money, will really slow China innovation. It's more the, the stopping of those people uh, yes. providing help to those companies. So it's really the technology transfer, the knowledge transfer that they want to stop. It's not really about the money involved because it's very little as, a, as the whole of China investment in new technology. You make a good point that's so relevant to the Bloomberg technology audience that this is essentially a restriction on private capital investment, VC, private equity. 
But for, as a public market investor, does it sour the attractiveness of any of the Chinese ADRs that trade on, on U.S. exchanges? Well, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about specific Chinese ADRs. Um, you know, we recognize that the political tension between the U.S. and China is not likely to ease anytime soon. And that does help to guide the sorts of investments we're willing to make uh, in China in other parts of Asia. Um, but it doesn't discourage us entirely. You know, our, our international group is on the ground looking for, for ideas there. You know, in our balance strategy, which I'm responsible for, we still like Taiwan Semiconductor despite the political risks uh, that we obviously acknowledge are out there, because Taiwan Semi serves the global demand for semiconductors, and they're at the forefront, they're at the leading edge of advanced manufacturing, and they serve so many U.S. designers uh, of chips, and, and they're an integral part of that, from NVIDIA to, to AMD to Broadcom and, and others. Later in the show, we're going to actually talk a little bit about Tokyo Electron, which is a Japanese chip gear maker, equipment maker. But they're getting a lot of demand from China because at the same time, China is trying to react to this, right? So think about some of the names we're interested in. NVIDIA has circumvented the other U.S. restrictions on technology export by producing a lower power GPU. Um, yeah. What is your perspective on how U.S. technology names who want to do business in China can get around some of these executive orders? Yeah, so for a while, I think U.S. companies like NVIDIA, AMD, uh, Cisco, and others will continue to be able to sell into China. But as NVIDIA has done, they'll have to sell less capable chips than the leading edge that they'll get to sell elsewhere in the world. And, and as you saw, not just with what Tokyo Electron said about the continued demand for equipment uh, into China, because you know China is going to want to build and is going to continue to build up its own semiconductor manufacturing capabilities, encouraged in part by all these restrictions, not just from the U.S., but from Europe as well, like the Netherlands. And in addition, we saw also right, that, uh, according to the Financial Times, that NVIDIA is receiving like $5 billion worth of orders from Chinese companies now because they're afraid that the restrictions are only going to get more severe. So you know, China remains an opportunity even if they are constrained because they're going to want to get as, as high-level chips and as high-level equipment in the semiconductor industry as they possibly can, and it's pretty clear that China is going to be making its own investments in design capabilities, in manufacturing capabilities, and a lot of the people they have on staff, right, at, at SMIC and at other locations in the design world as well as manufacturing, yeah. have been trained in the U.S. and have worked for U.S. companies. So they have a lot of knowledge to work with. Joanne, all told, on any metric or scale you like, what is your assessment on the warmth or health of the U.S.-China relationship? Where do we stand? Oh, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being least healthy, I'd say we're around a 3 right now. I mean, it is not a good place um, because of uh, our goals in the U.S. to prevent China from uh, you know, creating military capabilities that would be a threat to us are essentially in conflict with China's goals. And that level right. of tension... I you know, I'm not a military, a political expert, but I don't see that level of tension easing. From everything I've read, that's not going to really get any better. Can we cooperate on fronts outside of those sensitive areas? Yes, obviously, and we should, you know, hope for the sake of our companies and our consumers, by the way, who benefit from getting cheaper goods out of China, that the restrictions don't spread beyond those essential areas uh, yes. where the U.S. finds, you know, it's needed for, for our security. 
And, and clearly that's the case. I mean, look at what NVIDIA continues to sell. Look at what other companies continue to be able to sell, whether it's Tokyo Electron or uh, Applied Materials or KLA or LAM Research, right? There's still plenty of opportunity in China. It's just a bit narrower now, a bit lower margin now than it was before. The U.S.-China relationship on a 3 out of 10 on the Joanne Feeney Advisors Capital Management Scale. Thank you so much for your time. Good to catch up here on Bloomberg Technology. Time for Talking Tech. Chinese chipmakers are speeding up investments in mature semiconductor equipment as the U.S. and its allies tighten export controls to cut Asia's tech edge. Asia's biggest semiconductor gear maker is seeing extremely strong investment in China, quote, and is winning new customers there. That all according to the name Tokyo Electron and its CEO. And something else we're tracking is Alibaba returning to growth across all its main divisions, defying China's economic turbulence. This a first step forward to a long awaited comeback after more than a year of malaise. China's online shopping leader reported a better than expected 14% rise in revenues during a quarter when the world's number two economy struggled to gain momentum. After years of COVID zero restrictions, shares up more than 5% in US trading today. Those are the US listed ADRs. Let's head to space. Three, two, one, release, release, release. That's the first set of private tourism passengers embarking on the ride of a lifetime. Two outer space on Virgin Galactic's second commercial space flight. Joining us now, Bloomberg News reporter on all things space, Lauren Grush. Hey, seventh successful launch. Finally, 20 years later, Virgin Galactic gets some tourists into space. Give us the details. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it really has been leading to this moment. I know I probably said that during their last flight, but this is the one that sent private paying space tourists to space, and that is ultimately why Virgin Galactic was founded in the first place nearly 20 years ago. In fact, one of the passengers on today's flight, John Goodwin, has been waiting almost two decades. He's had his ticket that long, and he finally got to make good on that promise that Virgin Galactic made for him all those years ago. So this is why it was such a big moment. It's capping off nearly two decades of development for the company, and from here on out, it's going to be monthly flights of, of these uh, paying space tourists here after. So there's some things we have to clarify here. Originally, ticket prices were $250,000, right? They closed them while they basically put a pause on operations. When they reopened, they rose to $450,000. On board, we had three essentially customer tourist astronauts, but two of them were not paying customers, right? They won these tickets in a charity draw. Yes, that's correct. Only John was really the one that was one of the early ticket holders. And he competed at the 1972 Olympics. The big question is what happens next? What do we know about the cadence of launches now? The last one was in June, one today. How do they get going? So the ideal goal is to do monthly launches from here on out. Um, so we should see one of these flights with you know six uh, passengers on board, two pilots, four passengers go into space. I think for the foreseeable future, Virgin Galactic wants to have a support astronaut on board, so someone from within the company to kind of guide the passengers along. But you know, on these flights, we should should see about three ticket holders, uh, you know, get to finally fulfill their dream of seeing space. And that's a big deal because uh, as far as we're aware, the company has a backlog of 800 customers that have been holding on to tickets, some for, for many years. 
Bloomberg Space Correspondent Lauren Grush, thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. Apple is a key name that we're watching in the markets. We're actually basically treading water now, completely flat on the stock. It did fall 24 hours ago, and you'll remember the headline broke during Bloomberg Technology that in the context of Apple, the U.S. Supreme Court is allowing the iPhone maker to keep its App Store payment rules in place for the time being. This is dismissing a request from Epic Games that would have let developers direct iPhone users to other other lower-priced alternative stores online. Remember the context here. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals had sided with Epic and said that Apple's App Store rules contravened California competition law. What the Supreme Court is doing simply here is intervening, saying for the time being, Epic's request, which was to immediately allow users to be redirected to other stores, has been rejected. Apple is expected to appeal the original decision later in the year, but if the judges won't hear it, then, then it sides with Epic anyway. We've got to discuss what this means for Epic's prospects of enforcing the original rule and bring in Sarah Olam. She's a senior fellow at the Tech Policy Institute. That was a lot. It's, it's a difficult one to explain, Sarah, but at a high level, what does the Supreme Court intervention mean at this stage? Sure. So Justice Kagan denied an application by Epic to overturn the Ninth Circuit stay on the district court's order um, pending Apple's petition for certiorari to the Supreme Court this fall, as you said. Um, so basically, the federal appellate court said that Apple doesn't need to lift yet its anti-steering provisions. Basically, um, the buttons, external links, or other calls to action that direct customers to alternative purchasing mechanisms um, in their app store, um, they don't need to lift um, that restriction yet. Um, Epic um, charges um, developers lower fees on their own app store, and so they want a way to tell folks that, oh, you can click this button to go to our store. Um, so that's what's at issue here. So just to remind our audience, um, the appeals court has put its decision on hold so that Apple has time to file a Supreme Court appeal later in the year. But the ruling only kicks in if the justices refuse to hear the case. So it's complicated. What is the Tech Policy Institute's kind of big picture stance on this battle and the idea at the heart of it? Well, what's interesting um, is that it's about this state law, California's unfair competition law, and it's focused um, only on the anti-steering provisions. Basically, can other um, app stores put links and buttons in Apple's app store um, to say, hey, user, you can click this link to go to another store to buy your in-app purchases. Um, that's what we're talking about here. Um, there are other items that are in actually another trial with Epic versus Google coming up this fall. Um, and so that'll be interesting to watch as well. Um, what's interesting to me also is looking at Epic and Fortnite. So um, Epic it has three different lines of business itself. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar company that is a game developer, but also an app store um, and also a distributor. And so what's really interesting is to see how these two app stores are competing um, in the courts. The technology story here is about developers and the app store. Um, 
do you see any merit in kind of Apple's argument, which in summary essentially uh, is that it, it is a relief to developers. You know, Apple feel like they're giving a lot of business and, 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 and visibility opportunity um, with the rules such as they are. Yes, well, I think, I mean, personally, I think it makes sense that Apple would say on their own app store that we don't want links to other app stores that are competing with us. And so um, on that point, um, it, it makes sense that a store wouldn't want um, to be able to promote other stores in their own store. Um, so that's what it is at issue here. Um, there are other claims in other um, lawsuits, and actually there, the two other claims that Epic made at trial um, were denied, were failed. Um, so what's really at issue here is that disclosure rule, the anti-steering rule, um, and California's unfair competition law. And so, you know, there was a 16-day bench trial. There were dozens of witnesses, 900 exhibits um, in September 2021. And so they thoroughly went through all the different claims. Um, the only one that survived, which is at issue here, is are those buttons or the links um, to other stores. And, and that seems, um, you know, that's a very contained question. What's interesting as well is um, the appeal that Apple um, might um, file or will file with the Supreme Court raises some interesting yes. federalism issues. Um, and so that'll be good to watch. Well, that's what I want to ask you next. You know, we love having you on the show, Sarah. You have such a deep knowledge in the area, but I appreciate you don't have a crystal ball, right? But what do you think will be the outcome? Um, if the justices choose not to hear the Supreme Appeal, what, what are the other avenues that either party can go down? Uh, well, so it sounded like we'll have to wait and see what um, Apple files in their certiorari um, appeal. But it, it sounded like they, they will raise questions about, you know, can a, a ruling on a state law affect um, um, by a, a federal court um, affect broadly parties outside of, of the, the lawsuit. Um, so that'll be an interesting question to ask. When it comes to the ecosystem of game gaming, um, I think there are a lot of questions about antitrust theory and about competition in the marketplace um, that are unanswered and that um, are good to go through um, discovery and litigation um, to actually look at yes. the numbers, the market shares. Um, so we'll we'll be watching the Epic versus Google trial as well um, to see you know how much competition is there in this marketplace and yeah it makes sense for um, yes. gaming platforms to have have rules. Sarah, this is Epic's response to the Supreme decision 24 hours ago. The result will be to injure not only Epic, but innumerable consumers and other app developers for a significant period of time. Just very quickly in the 30 seconds we have left, what do you, do you your response, I suppose, to Epic's position on this? Well, my question for them would be, you know, how, how can you measure injury? And so they have to prove um, losses, um, and that's a counterfactual. Um, it's not clear to me that um, there would be a lot of um, losses. I mean, people know that they can go outside of different stores to reach um, Fortnite and Epic content. They can go to Epic's um, app store themselves. And so um, it's a matter of discovering um, what that number is, having experts weigh in, and doing some economic analysis.
Sarah Olam, Senior Fellow at the Tech Policy Institute. Thank you for coming here on Bloomberg Technology, reacting to what's been a big story in the last 24 hours. All right, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, is it a good time to expand your investments outside of the US? That has been the question of this program. We're going to talk all things from the venture capital perspective in the domestic US and abroad with Christine Zai, CEO of 500 Global. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. You know, amid the flood of big tech layoffs, it's becoming harder than ever to try and enter Y Combinator, the famous Silicon Valley startup accelerator where Airbnb, Coinbase and Reddit all got their start. Bloomberg Originals host and executive producer Emily Chang sat down with Y Combinator CEO Gary Tan to talk about the state of tech markets and venture tap capital. Have a listen. We're seeing tens of thousands of people getting laid off from tech companies. How does this play out? I think a lot of large companies started treating their employee base almost as a place to park resources and almost as a competitive moat versus the other mm. giants. And uh, when I think the, about the amount of talent that was sort of locked up in cushy jobs that you know, could have been actually out there in the market making new technology, pushing things forward, I'm hoping a lot of them actually come over to startups and they realize, oh, this is what it's like to run fast again. What's your advice for these workers who are getting laid off? It does sound a little trite to just say, it's time to build. Right, it sure does. <laughs> I mean, I think some of it is like, it takes stock, right? Like getting much more connected to the problems out there, I think will lead to just a lot more direct access to I mean, building equity, building businesses that really matter. Well, speaking of equity, for years, tech workers have been paid in stock. And that was sort of, you know, the ticket. You're taking a risk on this company. Uh, it could be worth zero or it could, you know, be worth millions, Absolutely. right? We're seeing kind of the dark side of RSUs or getting paid in stock now. Do you think that's still the way it should work in Silicon Valley? I mean, that's some of the magic of startups. I think this is about labor being able to access 
your actual capital. And this is like one of the most direct and most awesome versions of it. Mm -hmm. Some of the bad behavior we saw from startup founders was trying to reach for that billion dollar valuation because they wanted the headline uh, out there saying that they're a unicorn now, but that comes at a cost, right? The focus on valuation and getting that next notch of valuation above all else, that comes at both a great personal cost to the founders themselves, but also to the employees. So what do you think needs to change? I think some of it is already happening, right? You know, the revaluation of startups right now is starting and it will continue. People are going to be a lot more mindful about, you know, do I really need to do that 50 to $200 million raise? That was Y Combinator CEO Gary Tam. Watch more of The Circuit with Emily Chang tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern time on Bloomberg Television or if you're a modern day person, stream it at 8 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Originals. Let's stick with the venture capital story now. And for today's VC Spotlight, let's bring in Christine Zai. She's the founding partner and CEO of 500 Global, a multi-stage venture capital firm, $2.5 billion in assets under management. The big story of the show has been President Biden's executive order on limiting U.S. investment privately, VC or, or PE, into mainland China. Now, I don't think 500 Global does invest into mainland China, but what is your reaction to that executive order. Well, thanks so much, Ed, for having me. And it really makes me reflect back to the early days of 500. We just celebrated our 13th anniversary a couple weeks ago. So to go back to 2010, very different era in Silicon Valley and technology and venture capital. Um, What has really evolved over the the last 13 years that 500 has been investing globally is certainly um, huge growth in venture funding, tech penetration worldwide, but also, and particularly in the U.S., this intersection between tech, venture, and policy. So I think this will only increase. Um, As you mentioned, 500 Global, uh, we we aren't active in China. Our focus has largely been investing U.S. and globally. And for us, that really means what we've actually referred to as the rise economies. So 25 of what we see as the largest, fastest growing economies in markets like Indonesia, Malaysia, Turkey, Mexico, and so forth. And we've seen great opportunities there. At the heart of the Biden story, though, is the the merits and benefits of investing in U.S. tech versus international markets. So some of those countries you listed, what is it about them that makes them as attractive as a venture, uh, a backed investment into a a founder or or even a larger startup? Because you're at multi-stage, right? Yes. Well, early on, we we began investing uh, both in the U.S., Silicon Valley, but outside of the U.S. since 2010. And today, our portfolio is more than 2,800 companies. About half of that portfolio is non-U.S specifically in those rise economies that I mentioned, like in Indonesia or or Mexico or Turkey or, or so forth, what we have seen early on is that these are very large economies, fast growing from both population growth as well as GDP growth. And we took a bet very early on that because of the many trends that we were seeing in technology, if you remember 2010, costs to start a company were coming down dramatically. Online platforms like a Google, Meta, you know, previously Facebook, Twitter, mobile was really taking off in terms of Apple and Android, that all of this would make it just much uh, more cost-effective and the barrier to start a company would come down. So as a result, we would start seeing a lot of big opportunities from founders building all around the world. And so that is really our belief. It continues to hold true. 
and for us, I think we're, we're going to just continue to uh, deepen, uh, deepen that exposure. Christine, you sound very busy. I mean, and I mean that kindly. Here on VC Spotlight, you know, we have a, a, a number of VCs that are sort of narrowly focused on early stage or growth stage, or the firm might have one early stage fund, one growth stage fund, but with a geographic narrow focus. 2,800 portfolio companies, 80 countries, multi-stage. Just from an industry perspective, how do you manage that as a firm? Well, you know, from the early days, a lot of that vision was really to find great opportunities, great founders in all corners of the world because of that bet we took. And our roots are certainly in early stage, and that continues to be an area we're very active in. However, a lot of the opportunity that we saw was that a lot of these markets that we took a bet on early coming online um, have now generated a number of big outcomes, either regional or, or global category leaders. And we've had a great opportunity because of the early relationship relationships we've established with founders from you know early on as either one of or the first institutional backer to, to really follow the founder's journey and help back them from pre-seed to pre-IPO. So for us, it's really in line with our, uh, certainly the original uh, vision and thesis, but you know we're excited to, to keep supporting the founders um, in all corners of the world where they may actually need it more in terms of uh, the development of venture, the venture ecosystem. We showed some of your portfolio companies a moment ago, Canva, GitLab, Credit Karma, the names that jump out. The story of 2023, though, has been artificial intelligence. Are you focused on AI native companies or more AI adjacent startups that kind of want to jump in uh, and, and gain benefit from the tool of, of generative AI or a large language model? It's, it's definitely not, a, never a dull moment, especially as it relates to AI. And against the stark backdrop of the macro markets and valuations falling and funding dropping. But you know, for us, because we have our roots in investing in a larger number of companies across a number of sectors, uh, one of the big benefits of that um, and really an advantage for us is to be able to spot what we see our emerging innovation, uh, not just in the US, but in all corners of the world. So as it relates specifically to AI, we have been investing in companies in the AI space for a number of years. And I think as we see uh, the the uptick in terms of companies building either, like, like you said, they're going after the AI tech stack itself or kind of AI adjacent or really going after existing sectors from kind of an AI perspective, uh, we definitely are leaning in and looking at all of those opportunities and, and then writing investments. Um, and I think what's quite unique, again, from our perspective is that this is not just a Silicon Valley story or just a U.S. story. It's really a global story. Um, oftentimes what we've seen in the early days is that certain business models will start in the U.S. and then we, we see them happen in other parts of the world. But for AI, it really is happening in parallel um, in many different markets. Christine Tsai, founding partner and CEO of 500 Global, 2,800 portfolio companies in 80 countries. That is global reach here on VC Spotlight. So look, online dating can be just as tough as dating in person, from ghosting and harassment to chats that don't lead to dates. Now AI chatbots could help solve that issue. At least that's what a number of these startups are saying. Here to unpack more is Bloomberg's Irene Nakano. And you've been reporting on this, some specific apps that are a tool to help in dating. But what's the big picture story here? What are the apps purporting to be able to do? Yeah, so my colleague Kaylin Pender and I, we downloaded three relatively new apps um, that are marketed to be AI driven. So this is beyond the machine learning that you see in traditional dating apps like Tinder and Hinge. 
Um, and these apps are marketed to rid the inefficiencies that you see in the dating world. These are things like ghosting. And ghosting, which is when your matches ignore you, and inefficient matches that are just not they're not good matches. Right. So I actually met my wife on a dating app, but it was me doing the, the work, the conversation. Right. Some of the functionality of the technology is to mimic you or to do things on your behalf. Just explain how it works. And, and you actually tested it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Teaser AI, which is the app that gets rid of the small talk, um, essentially jumps to the part where your chatbot talks to your match. So they have full license over your conversations and they will break the ice with quirky conversations. But to our extent, we found out that a lot of them were false facts about ourselves. One debate for the industry broadly is, is the cost of dating apps. You know, it was the one that I used was free, but there's a premium element as well. Do these AI-driven apps cost? What, what are the fees involved? Yeah, so they're free um, for the most part, but like other traditional dating apps, there's a free subscription and the premium subscription. And the premium features include things like better matches, more matches, or finding out why people didn't like you, um, which is a mystery to a lot of people. And these range from 4 to $60 a month. I think that the bit that we got hung up on is, is the mimicking and flirting bit. Is it realistic, the experience, that the, the AI-generated content, does it come across as a human? So we found that they were very, very awkward. That sometimes the AI would send pictures, um, avatar pictures of themselves, which were very awkwardly posed. Um, so I wouldn't think that they were, you know, there was a human behind it. But some people seems to really like it. And there's also a Breakup Buddy app, which will help you guide through your heel and self-journey. Um, when a robot breaks your heart. All right, Bloomberg's Eri Nakano. This is AI IRL right here on Bloomberg Technology. Unfortunately, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tune in Friday. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by Kyle Vott, the CEO of driverless car company, Cruise. A lot of news coming out in the self-driving space in recent weeks. New markets. We're still kind of waiting for the real deal, something we've talked about here on this program. It has been a mega week. We're just four days in. Earnings have been a big part of the story. So don't forget that you can recap everything we've talked about on the show a big emphasis on biden's executive order when it comes to investment in china check out the podcast wherever you get your podcast we're on apple we're on spotify and we're on iheart and of course the podcast also on the bloomberg platforms four days in guys one day to go from san francisco this is bloomberg technology from silicon valley to wall street The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com/slash TechSF.